Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Leadership Now. Today, good friend of mine, Kerry Brown. Kerry Brown is a strategist and thought leader on the future of work, change management, learning, workforce adoption, talent, organizational development. I've known her for years. Kerry's worked in senior roles at firms such as SAP, Coca-Cola, pretty good brand name, CSR, among others. Nowadays, she's applying her trade and wonderful talents as a leader at Salonis, the world's first commercial process mining company. My friend, where do we start? Uh, good to see you. Last time, maybe we were face-to-face. -face, we were co-delivering a talk uh, to, a, to an audience of thousands, I'm sure. But um, let's catch up on future of work, first of all. Um, here we are, I hope, even though I have COVID today, entering into a post-pandemic world. Do do we have a plan for future of work? Like where, where's your take right now and where the organization and its leaders are at and, and sort of we'll start there. Do we have a plan? Well, if there's a plan A and a plan B and a plan C, I think we're on, you know, much, much further on in the alphabet in terms of the plan. <laughs> okay. Uh, somewhere S-T-U-V uh, or, or, you know, V1, V2. Yeah. Um, in terms of a plan, I'd say a couple of things. The future of work is more than just where we work. So the future of work as a topic grew like six, seven years ago. And really my interpretation and, and globally the interpretation of it looks at how does work happen? So it's where you work for sure, but mm -hmm. it's also, is it robots or machine learning or AI? And how does work continually change where technology intersects with people and work? So I think the plan is ever changing and has been, been and continues to be stretched and pushed and poked by supply chain issues, by talent demand, by flexibility demand for employees for where they work. So in terms of the people of where you work, I would say that we're in the, you know, it's like when you move house, you know, you move, you, you decide to move, you move, you move in and you go, I don't really like it quite how it is. And you move things around a bit and change the couch or rearrange the kitchen. Yeah. You know, I, I think we're in the renovation mode. We've moved in like you know, when we when we all moved out very rapidly from where we worked to somewhere else, we got comfortable and spent a couple of years doing one pattern. We've all we've you know now we've moved back to somewhere else and are figuring out what that commuting rhythm looks like, what the right Goldilocks sweet spot is for time together, time not together, given I think some parameters and boundaries that are requiring a flexibility model that every employee is expecting because the the human reckoning around what I want what I don't want what's necessary you know the rules of do I have to be together well we all manage to work unless we're a frontline worker or a manufacturing job many of us change where we work so we know that we don't have to be together all the time but we also know that we kind of want to be together some of the time so mm -hmm. I would say that we're figuring that out on the on the where we live front i would also say the other pieces of future work have become equally amplified the volume of demographics changes like if you and i frankly the last time you and i were talking together live there were a whole lot more boomers working <laughs> and yeah. they're they've they've the mass exodus of the building you know the tsunami the silver tsunami is tsunamiing yeah. and as the other it's there's lingering waves following and we've got over 50% of the workforce are millennials. Point being, you have, I actually think there's going to be probably as much churn for another five years. And my reason for saying that is people, regardless of which bucket of age we're putting them in, 
people stay still when their kids are between 10 and 18 mm-hmm. because their lives start to make sense to stay still. And the oldest millennial is 40. Those who have kids, their kids are not quite in that place where they don't have the flexibility and choice. So I think we're going to see a reasonable amount of churn until you have a critical mass of people who have a critical mass of kids who want, they want to stay still and support their body, their, their family and their family unit. Um, so from a volume of change around talent, I think that's going to keep shifting in terms of the other aspects of future work. So AI and machine learning and robotics yeah. equally, when we pulled people or were challenged to have resources in manufacturing, in supply chain, in other spaces, and have been looking at safety considerations or resource availability that has also stretched and changed. So I, I think the awareness of technology you know anyone who did, who wasn't tech oriented as a business before covid got tech oriented because you couldn't sit around a meeting room and chat yeah you had to have some way to connect um you know, on finances on sales numbers on whatever you're looking at so to me i think we're we we have accelerated everything to do with the future of work rapidly on on hyperspeed in the last couple of years and are getting more comfortable and still stubbing our toe a little bit. Carrie, do you think, uh, without naming company names, but are you are you concerned or frightened or alarmed by some of the organizational leader decisions to mandate people back into the office on certain days, as opposed to sort of the autonomy that you're alluding to where, yes, I, I mean, I want to give you a hug too. I'd love to hang out and have a face-to-face conversation with you over a drink. But do you see that consternation, I suppose, of the employee rising such that whatever demographic you're in, you know, they're actually going to be haves and have nots or i.e. the employee saying, you know what, Um, I do want that flexibility that company X is offering over here. Screw that. I'm going to go work for them. Uh, I I, I do. I I do see consternation. I actually in some of the earlier getting people together conversations around how to navigate through this, one of the questions I asked a number of organizations that had hourly shift workers who needed to be where making and doing things together mm-hmm. is how are they dealing with the, the haves and the have nots of when there was a lot more fear and concern around safety and risk and health of proximity of people? Yeah. How were they dealing with the fact that the workers who were the hourly workers, shift workers, laborers, who often were considered by many companies almost as replaceable versus, you know, the office worker was often given more attention, more money. You know, when you looked at the hourly workers who were office workers versus the hourly workers who were shift workers and need to be together, how are they balancing out some of that in terms of who's really business critical and who's really worth more, if you will? Um, and that I know has been a point of pain and a point of attention for a lot of organizations over the last couple of years and has changed some of the, who do we, who do we value the most? Like think of how we've all paid attention to health workers differently. Yeah. Um, the other question though, on where do you need to be? Um, so yes, there's the super obvious Elon Musk, everyone must come back to work to name a name that everyone hears about in the news. I, I, I think that's a bit short-sighted. Um, in terms of everyone must all the time be together because we have learned we don't need to sit in rush hour traffic at the same time. We have learned we can do a lot. What you and I are doing works well like this. It would be great if we were together, but everyone we're sharing this with 
isn't with us now either. So the the reach also grows. So there's wins mm. from some of the flexibility. I would say that I do think that people should have time together when it's purposeful. So when you look at the purpose-driven company or purpose-driven decisions, I think that the purpose-driven time really becomes the intentionality for working on strategy together, working on planning together, doing um, some social things together that aren't just the hard work, but have developed the relationships so that you have those relationships when you aren't always together. Like you and I are friends because we spent time together over time. So we can carry that friendship through virtually. Right. And so you do need some spontaneous downtime. And that's the thing I think that was lost during COVID is you, you can't, you had to schedule spontaneity. You couldn't walk into somebody in the hallway. Mm -hmm. So having some fixed time so people can have good planful how do I navigate my kids, my life, my workouts, my my demands, my life, I think has also become where work-life balance is work-life management and there's choices around it. So will people change if they don't get what they want where they are? Um, they have been doing that. The great resignation, the great re, you know, reshuffling is happening. If there's a recession, if there's you know dot, 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 will that sh shrink back? You're certainly seeing some of that right now. Some larger growth activities are are slowing in companies. There's definitely a bit of a pause button like there was at the start of COVID. And then the world, you know, we were on fire in terms of people moving around yeah. for COVID. And then everyone stood still. Yeah. And then, you know, the great rush continued, even though we were all virtual. Like people were being hired into new jobs at mass speed and leaving and going at mass speed, not meeting in person ever so you know i i think there's i i i think it's short-sighted to require all or nothing i yeah. also think it's in, it's really valuable to have some time together to to build and that goldilocks sweet spot is different by industry by geography by size of company you know and that the listening piece of that you know so you know when i was at sap qualtrics did a ton of work at uh, free around the world to listen to employees as they first left, to listen to employees as they were moving around. I think the listening has grown and the empathy and the awareness. To me, one of the biggest touch points in the space we live in, people were a little bit taken for granted. The you know the line of resources is the largest line on a lot of balance sheets. Yeah, people were scarcity. You know the awareness that if you didn't have people, hmm, you know they were sort of taken for granted a little bit. I think that everyone is thinking more about talent and how it plays and how it contributes. So we're, we're no longer just a number on a spreadsheet. We're actually human beings that you think we've made the shift, if you will, to the humanity side, where we're actually concerned about the well-being, uh, the nurturing of the, of the human. I do. I, yeah. I think that no one got a hall pass in the last two years. <laughs> so nice. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just in a particular geography where, we, where it wasn't in your backyard. It wasn't just a particular level. It wasn't, it was everybody, you know, every person in the world was touched and that fragility and that um, vulnerability, I think gave an empathy and an awareness to people that many had and many just didn't have as much as they have now. So I do legitimately believe that the attention and focus and the uh, refresher on the importance of people for some and the not refresher but new found focus is is really present and and has had a lingering lasting effect i i think some people have gone back to normal 
you know, like out of sight, out of mind, the problem is not as, as imminent, but I think on mass, there's a much greater awareness. Recently, I've been sinking my teeth into research, uh, particularly about the integration of work and life uh, mm -hmm. for this next book of mine. And so you brought up work-life balance. Uh, and so uh, the question I have for you, Carrie, is what have we learned, I suppose, right, um, as a result of uh, not just the past two and a half years of a pandemic, but even prior to that. So, you know, the last maybe five, seven years of, you know, people are human beings, they have a life. So what does the employer ought, need need or ought to be doing to develop, um, nurture mm -hmm. the self, the id, the identity, mm -hmm. right, of the human being, of the employee, mm -hmm. and, and vice versa, right? What does the employee need to be doing uh, to fit, you know, inside the work uh, at the organization? I think it's a two-way street. It's not one or the other. So I agree with you. It's, it's both have to play like in any relationship. Early in COVID, my coaching and guidance was communicate more. So as a manager, communicate more so the employee isn't unaware and frightened so that they know what's going on. And as an employee, communicate more so they don't think you're home eating bonbons. Hmm. You know, like making sure that everyone is sharing and and where if you were seeing each other, you could tacitly cover expectations by I saw you or whatever else being overt around that. Next year, what I focused on was provide predictability. Mm -hmm. So there was so much uncertainty where you could provide some predictability and manage expectations. So you and I have talked about change management for years, big space I play in. If I boil down change management into one sentence about expectations and accountabilities. Mm -hmm. So if you have shared expectations and you all know what they are and you all know where to shop for them, it works. Surprises or not showing up for either is where disruption and unhappiness materializes. So what have we learned? Um, I think that we've learned we need to listen more. So to me as an employer, I think we've learned that if we have good KPIs, good descriptions, good expectation setting and good accountabilities responsibility there, we can trust people to do the right things. And we have ways to know that work is happening without seeing it in front of us. So that trust building, you know, the over communicating, the listening, Trust building on both sides is really one piece that I think is critical to work-life management, where that flexibility will continue. In terms of developing the id, I would say that people have gotten probably rightfully a little bit more selfish and needed to be because the intimacy of COVID was really palpable. You know, mm -hmm. we were inside people's homes where we weren't before. We met their children, we met their cats, we met their lives, and we... We used to, you know, the there's the TV show, right, that's on TV, or um, my brain's just gone blank about the name, Severance, I think it is, where you, you separate your brain and you show, you know, at work, you don't remember what you are at home, and at home, you don't remember what you're at work. Yeah. Um, we used to bring a persona to work, and we used to have a persona at home, and you might have with friends, and you, you show up slightly differently in each of those places. Frankly, I think the most comfortable people were the, their authentic selves everywhere, and when you talk about psychological safety at work, Bringing your whole self to work is really what builds that place of trust where your best self can show up. And your best self is also your most vulnerable self who has a crappy day or a hard day or needs support day. So I think that intimacy has created a, an acceptance and a, um, an insight into the, the more human side of who we are. So to me, what a develop, what an employer needs to do is continue to nurture that we we developed i think a bit of a kindness and a and an acceptance of of life 
and don't forget that. Don't expect to only have the worker back and leave the human behind. As an employee, um, there is value in coming together. So it, you know, work is work. It isn't play. Mm -hmm. So at some point, you know, we used to all pretzel our lives to make work happen. And now I think we're a little bit more selfish, but we also need to work. Mm -hmm. And it may be that some of the patterns of what we need to get together, you know, to get lots of people to do things at the same time requires that, that coordination, which may not mean that everybody gets what everybody wants every day. So it may be that Tuesdays and Thursdays are what we do or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday or whatever. And that, you know, we've all developed a very um, individual rhythm. You know, it's it's interesting if I think about a lot of people who consulted a lot and were on the road. Their families have like a life when the person's home and a life yeah, when they're not. Yeah, great, great and analogy. And when everyone comes home, you go, oh, you're here. And then like they came home and they never left. And so the rhythms <laughs> were very different. And... So when you think about, you know, we've all developed a life where we don't go to work for those of us who had the privilege to be able to work not in a in a in that state. And now we've got to go, okay, well, it's a little bit of both. So I think as an employee, it's, you know, thinking of it like an owner. If I were the owner, what would I want for my company? What would I want for my team? Not just what I want for me. And that balance of um, respect and trust, I think, is something that back to the empathy discussion having empathy as an employee for the employer and and the the limitations on finding talent the limitations on cost management the challenges to stay in business with weird supply chain issues all of, all of those things that you know businesses went through the same meat grinder of survival that the people did yeah. so i think that mutual respect and trust is is part of what each can contribute to a relationship to make it thrive. It's like you're alluding to this almost reciprocity of awareness, right? The employee has to be self-aware of not just themselves and who they are and what they're bringing to work, but what work is going through. It's not as if that there isn't the trials and tribulations, as you alluded to, that, you know, whether supply chain or otherwise, that um, the, the employer had to go through and then reverse that. Of course, the employer is just made up of people. And then if there's leaders, let's call them that, they're human beings. That so too have to be self-aware of themselves and how they're portraying, you know, them to the employees who are thus doing the work to get, you know, the job done, right? Fair? Very, very much so. And yeah. I, I think that the, you know, at the start of COVID, you know, I, I there was a good few weeks where I thought, okay, if I lose my job, what will I do? I didn't lose my job. My company made choices that allowed everyone to stay there. That was... Mm. There and yes, there were offsets of cost and so forth based on travel and not travel. You know, there were business choices, but it was you know it was a a privilege to to stay fully employed. I know people who went through pay cuts. I know people who went through furloughs and all the different things. And and then it's all redistributed. Um, but how do you have an appreciation for the employment you have that allows you to have the life that you're trying to balance? Mm -hmm. Very well said. Okay, two more questions, and we'll let you go. So um, you and I have worked a lot in the HR space or with HR. Mm -hmm. So what do you think uh, human resources or better known, hopefully these days as people and culture, what, what tactics do you think they should be employing, Carrie, this day and age to help create what you and I have been chatting about for the last, you know, 20 minutes or so? <laughs> um, listen. Listen, number one, listen, listen, listen more. Don't over survey all the time because people are also 
sick of being surveyed. Yeah. Um, so I realized that's a very contradictory statement, but getting uh, getting as personal as you can. If I go back a long way to you know, like leadership and the one minute manager or situational leadership and you know the, the premises where all this started, personal leadership, like who are who are the people who work for you and what do they need? And recognizing that one size fits all isn't really isn't necessary anymore. So, you know, getting clear uh, in, in HR on what does our business need? What does this role need to be successful? What does our team need? You know, what does an organization require? And then, and then leaving the rest to flexibility where you trust the employee to show up. So designing jobs that are around skills and capabilities, mm -hmm. not around years, not around education. Um, there is a massive change of, of people who are working. And I was having this discussion just a couple of days ago with a colleague who is now living heavily in the HR space with HR leaders and talking about how, you know, for 20 years, the world had a pretty static workforce who you were saying, it's like if you said, I want a house that's south facing that has a purple bedroom and a galley kitchen versus saying, I want a house that's going to house three people. Yeah. And you used to be able to be super specific and say, I want a person who's got exactly this resume and here's all the perfect criteria. Well, do they really matter to whether or not that person had that right job? No, this is what I need to get done. And so when you look now at the volume of great talent who's in the workforce, who doesn't necessarily have 15 years experience or 12 years experience or 17 years experience with that purple bathroom and galley kitchen, but they have the aptitude and the capability looking at focusing on the outcomes and the way who who can do the job and how the work can get done are outcomes focused versus being limited by your own her original expectations. So job postings in that regard, obviously all the equality considerations around that, that, you know, thinking about how do you write those job descriptions that they don't pre uh, preset the notion of either gender or, or capability or otherwise that would be the right person for that job. That's, a little bit of a no-brainer right now, but nonetheless, I'll say it because it does matter. Um, I would say in terms of the, the shared ownership consideration is as we continue to evolve to whatever the right Goldilocks sweet spot is, inviting smaller teams to help you. Like you, you as an HR business partner, or you as an HR person, people, culture person, you are part of the culture and you are one of the people. So you have your experience. But inviting in smaller task forces and teams to continually be the voice of and representation of your population around performance management, around what's the work-life balance rules. Having small quorums of teams is a really good tactical way to get an active voice that isn't surveying, you know, where you've got a small group of three to five to eight, depending on the size of your organization and the numbers of groups you want to represent. And have them be the, the shared voice where they keep the pulse on the organization and are an active voice to not only the people and culture leaders, but to the business leaders around what, what's continuing to change. You know, so on a quarterly basis, you reconnect with those groups to say, are we tracking? Do we change? So that you've got that active engagement um, is another really good tactic to keep keep everyone connected and not put all the burden on you. Oh, I love it. Okay. Uh, last question. So you're, you're such a purpose-driven leader and human being. You've done all kind of things, uh, kinds of things in the community. 
Um, but also DEIB and, you know, uh, gender parity and women in, women's inclusivity points. Like, can you tell me a bit about where you believe we are at, if you will, uh, particularly when it comes to sort of gender parity, gender pay parity, uh, women inclusivity in the organization, what more we need to do? We need to do more. <laughs> um, I'll just start there. We need to do more. I, I, I think the the collective awareness is greater. Um, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, as you know, and I would say that, yeah, so I, there's certainly a lot of visibility around um, race and culture in Atlanta, which is, I think illuminate, it, the last couple of years became illuminating for people who weren't necessarily, necessarily looking. Mm -hmm. I will say that the silver lining of goodness on what happened with George Floyd is that a lot of people paid attention who weren't necessarily paying attention before. And I, ironically think that if COVID weren't happening, we might not have noticed it as much as we did because everyone was at home and had the same access and um, volume of attention on something, which that wasn't the first time things like that have happened, but everyone looked at it. Yeah. And you saw the flood of, of attention in the DNI space, in organizations and the investment at a time when many organizations were figuring out how to survive. Yeah. Um, just just business. So it changed the 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 attention um, to women as well. It's been talked about. Um, there's a lot of conversation right now around and and movement towards uh, pay transparency. I you know it's interesting. My personal philosophy on pay for years has been, okay, there's some degree of privacy and um, dignity related to that for people. But if I were to find out what everyone I work with is paid, I would want to know, I would want to believe that if I saw it, I think it was fair. So do I necessarily need to know what everyone gets? No. Um, would it be interesting? Sure, it would be sure it'd be interesting. It's like, you know, what are your Christmas presents before you see them? It's always <laughs> not like a kid you want to know. Yeah. But I would I've always wanted to believe that if you saw it, you'd think it was fair. I think that if everyone were to see it, I don't think that everyone would think it was fair. You know, I it's currently still true. And so if you, everyone were to know and you go, well, Dan is worth that because Dan brings the following value and Susie is worth the following. And Bob is, if that, if everyone were to have the sensation that the contribution somebody's making is consistent with what they're being provided, then that would be goodness. I think right now, if everyone saw what everyone made, there'd be a bit of a shock. And I don't think we're there yet. And so preparing for, and continuing to recognize, you know, if you don't tell glass door fish, there, there are plenty of other places blind. There's lots of places where everyone's sharing. Mm -hmm. Is it all fully accurate? You know, you get to put whatever you want in there. So it's not been validated. Um, we are in an ever technology sharing world and that will become more visible. So yeah, it's like the 60 minutes rule. Would you want what you're doing to be on 60 minutes on Sunday night? Would you want all your pay to be shown? What would what would the reaction be if everyone knew? So I think having a, a critical eye and being intentional and deliberate around saying, okay, well, if we need to change it, what do we do in the next one, two, three years? Because you can't magically fix it in a in a year. But looking at it, thinking about it, committing to it, and and not at not being additive to the problem, um, I think is also key. Like it's an interesting. I'll, I'll add a, a thing I've had a thought on which I haven't talked about a lot. There's a ton of increased pay that came with the great resignation and the, the massive hiring in the last while. 
I suspect people who are in jobs, if they found out what some of the new people got hired on, would think, hmm, did I miss out? Should I be, mm-hmm. would I, what would I change? And granted, it's it's like the housing market, you know, do you buy or sell at the right time? Did you, where were you in the hiring um, situation and what's that talent worth? Will there be, will there be a settling of housing prices? Will there be a settling of, you know, what, what happens if there's a recession, just like we're seeing the changes in the marketplace, what will that do to jobs? So my summary of that is, are we, are we there yet? No. Have we made good strides? Yes. Is it something that isn't a tokenism discussion? Yes. Uh, I think it's moved beyond that. Um, But there's still more work to do. Fantastic. Uh, love your insights as always. Um, so tell us a bit about where you're at, uh, what you're doing at Salonis and where we can find out more about you. Absolutely. So I joined Salonis, which as you shared is the uh, original process mining. So process mining, if you think of any kind of systems we all use and gee, you hope, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd roll them out and cross your fingers and go, I hope they all use it properly. Um, <laughs> this is the you know, you go back and look at all the post-its a month later and go, well, they're not doing what we thought they were doing. Right. <laughs> so this is the ability to look at and see how work happens and how to address deviations and all that kind of goodness. So it actually, as much of it seems like a little bit of a detour, um, it's part of what I've played with. And so it was really exciting. Last week, I was at our world tour in New York and hmm. exciting to see how many customers from SAP, from Oracle, from Salesforce, from all the various places are excited about being able to figure out if the investment they made in technology, which is so significant for many companies, how it works. And it's the kind of visibility that we all have sort of talked about as the holy grail, but it's there. And so for me, it's it's it was exciting to see that commitment and engagement and enthusiasm. So I am uh, an advisor working with customers on how to navigate through transformation, how to make that stick like my litmus test is how people's jobs change when you do technology or or any kind of transformation so same thing how do you navigate through this um and thinking about where does ai machine learning and robotics fit in so how do you use so that process as a spine to look at and see where should ai could ai be used where does machine learning make it better how do you put automatic workflow all that you know how do you play with uh service now or like how does that all fit together what's that mosaic yeah, um, that is the right answer for a given company, and I'm curious to see where it goes. So I've been there a little while and get to play with a lot of old friends, and that's been lovely because it's a uh, it's definitely a family. Ah, uh, well, that's the best you could ask for. That's fantastic, Carrie. So thank you so much for this for just a wonderful compendium of different uh, facets of insight. Uh, really appreciate it, and um, yeah, can't wait to do the next one with you. Me too. Thanks today. All right, everyone, that's Kerry Brown here on Leadership Now. Cheers.